The third block of hearings of the RoboDebt Royal Commission concluded this week with former Social Services Minister Christian Porter accepting responsibility for not scrutinising the scheme enough. RoboDebt saw the federal government levy 433,000 people with debts totalling $1.7 billion. $750 million was wrongly recovered from about 381,000 people and the Commonwealth since accepted that it was unlawful to demand those payments. The Royal Commission's last block of hearings is in Brisbane at the end of the month and the final report is due on the 18th of April. But our next guest has already published findings in a paper called Algorithmic Decision-Making and System Destructiveness. Dr Tapani Rinta Kahila is a lecturer in Business Info Systems at the UQ Business School and the work of Tapani and his colleagues uh, was in the recent UQ feature on lessons from the robo-debt debacle. Those lessons are important despite robo-debt because AI is definitely coming to public sector systems and Tapani is also the co-author of the Institute for Digital Government's paper on building artificial intelligence capability in the public sector. Dr. Tapani Rintekahila, welcome to Sunday Extra. Thank you very much, Julian. Great to be here. It's great to have you. And it's interesting to know that as well as the robo-debt debacle, there has been a similar scandal in the Netherlands as a result of which the entire Dutch cabinet resigned in January of 2021. Could you tell us a little bit more about what happened there and what that tells us about the problems that are emerging with algorithmic decision-making in government? So that was a kind of a very similar case to RoboNet. They've been using, and they were using an actual like AI machine learning model to detect or predict uh, potential welfare fraud. And, and that case was specifically about childcare welfare. And I think they've had that kind of system from 2014, at least from 2014 in use. And, and there, the cohort affected was, I think it was significantly smaller than with RoboNet, but it was still thousands of people. And, and it was very similar. So it was also kind of speculative decision making, uh, allowing algorithm to decide without re real human intervention or human supervision mm. on, on whether citizens would have committed welfare fraud. And that ended up targeting minority populations, people in poor neighborhoods, and often making up depths in a speculative manner, depths that wouldn't actually exist. So yeah, that was very similar what happened with RoboDebt, but the big difference was that they actually used a machine learning technology that was drawing data from various sources. Could you explain that a little bit more for us? So, so RoboDebt wasn't actually machine learning. It was a different automated system. How, how was it different? So RoboDebt, you know, as, as far as we know, was a rule-based system. So it was pretty simple data matching algorithm. It was data matching and averaging algorithm. So it was basically matching ATO data. ATO had its um, income data for every citizen in, in uh, annual format, so so yearly figure, and then matching that with Centrelink's uh, records that were recorded earnings in fortnightly basis with the amount of welfare payments that were paid to the citizens. And, and then to reconcile this difference, they would use averaging. So they would basically divide that annual figure of ATO with uh, 26 fortnights. And that, of course, it it it's, it doesn't work because many people uh, would have varying employments. They would have varying uh, um, amounts of income 
per each month. So that would be a very simplistic approach, assuming that you would earn exactly the same amount every month, which is not reality for many people who are who have been on welfare. And in the lessons that you and your colleagues have identified from RoboDebt, Tapani, number one, I think, was technical flaws. And I, I was interested in the way you described it, a simplistic algorithm that couldn't cope with real life complexity. Uh, could you unpack that a little bit more for us? Yeah, yeah. So when we look at the, uh, you know, social welfare, potential overpayment, so in general, like the domain of welfare is it's a, it's a very human-centered domain, right? So you have... Mm different human stories, you have different people who have, for various reasons, they've been on welfare payments. And to basically shoehorn that complexity into a simple averaging algorithm, it's just not going to work. The algorithm will not understand the context of things. And even if it's a highly sophisticated machine learning algorithm that potentially they were using in Netherlands, it, it still is not able to understand the context and you know whatever surrounds that there are unique circumstances for each citizens mm. so that's why it's a human centered problem human centered process and that's why you need to have human in the loop Yes, and that's why I suppose you focus on the fact that it's not just technical failures, but it's also organisational failures. Another um, yes. category of which was complex and confusing interfaces that are not well explained to users. Now, that certainly resonated um, with uh, with me when I was thinking about some, t- some interactions with government. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so basically... Um and with interface, we were looking at the entire interface, the technical interface of uh, MyGov system, but then we also considered the actual letters that the citizens received as, mm. as kind of a part of the program interface. And in the initial iteration of the program, they would just get these letters that didn't even give you know, helpline number of what to do if you want to challenge the debt. It was just saying like you owe this much money and you need to pay or, or you need to log into the government systems, but there were very little advice on how to do that or or what if you don't have computer what if you have a internet connection what should you do then so in in general it was made quite difficult and as as you mentioned navigating government you know digital systems is not always easy either how important was it that the robo debt system sort of reversed the onus of proof in terms of potential liabilities and and meant that it was the you know, the ordinary Centrelink customer, a citizen, who had to sort of prove that they didn't have these debts. Yeah, so no, that's a highly relevant point. And that's actually the uh, a fundamental legal issue that was the, the basis of, of the ruling when it was ruled as unlawful, because you, you, you cannot reverse the onus of proof. The onus lies on, on the one who is collecting the debt, not on the person who is being collected from. So that was a fundamental design issue on the kind of legal or procedural side of things. And why do you think, Tapani, that those fundamental mistakes were made in the design of the system? What are the factors that caused it in the case of RoboDebt or that could prevent it in other situations? Mm, well, that's a very, very relevant question. And I think that's what they are now trying to sort out, figure out in the Royal Commission hearings. Basically, when we wrote the uh, research paper on this, um, based on the publicly available materials that we were able to get, 
our interpretation was that there was a certain political commitment that that sort of narrowed the vision of the top mm. management who was responsible of the program. So they they had promised budget savings and they had a a certain way in mind of doing that. And that was kind of built on the premise of being very critical towards welfare systems in general. Like there was this narrative about dole bludgers and, and welfare fraud going on, that, that this was a significant issue and, and the government would crack down on that. That was the, the kind of the public rational or motivation for that. Mm. And certainly uh, so there clearly, was evidence from the Royal Commission this week that that was an active factor in the way uh, yes. the public debates were conducted and information was provided to media organisations regarded as receptive to those messages. Yes, yes. And and we understood that it was also like the preparation was pretty much done behind closed doors. So uh, certain, I guess, certain stakeholders were consulted, but to what extent, we don't know. And, and certain other stakeholders were not even, you know, consulted, like Digital Transformation Agency was not looped in the development at all. So it seems like it was a political project and mm. it, it needed to be done no, no matter what. And, and any contradictory opinions were suppressed. Uh, this one's a bit of a question without notice. Uh, Tapani Rindakahila, but uh, obviously robo debt is an example of the very opposite of best practice when it comes to implementing AI in government. Yeah. Are there case studies or examples of uh, the implementation of artificial intelligence which demonstrates the, the proper way to do it or shows how powerful and positive artificial intelligence could be in government processes? Yeah, there are those as well. So we've done some research uh, with the uh, Danish Business Authority, and they seem seem to be doing things in a in a very uh, responsible way, uh, considering potential issues and having mm. uh, multiple iterations um, at the risk of stereotyping. Also, of course, they are. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and the same thing in Australia. The white paper you mentioned. We've uh, been looking into uh, AI implemented in the context of health. So a algorithm to detect sepsis uh, in the hospital uh, emergency ward with the um, the goal of detecting sepsis before and, and getting the antibiotics in time before we actually lose the person. So, mm. And the way they are doing that, they are testing different models. They are carefully considering potential issues with bias. Let's say if the model works uh, better for a certain age group than another is that an issue? What should we do about it? What if we cannot explain how the model works? Why did it recommend to focus on this certain patient and not the other? Is that a problem if, if the model is too complex and we can't explain? So they are, seem to be really conscious of these things. They are rolling it out quite slowly in stages uh, and, and then going back, see, seeing what the outcomes are, having that feedback loop, going back and, and seeing what needs to be changed. And, and so... They are doing all, all many of these things that should be best practices that were not done with RoboDebt. So I think it's about figuring out the right uh, configuration of human and machine. So mm. humans need to be in the loop when we're talking about human-centered problems, when we're talking about decisions that influence human lives and well-being. So obviously you need to have humans there making sure things go well and human accountability and how are you going to do that so that it is still you know it still makes a business case i think that's something that companies government agencies and us researchers are trying to figure out so this is a hot topic like we have this technology it's it's incredible what you can do with artificial intelligence it would almost be irresponsible not to 
try to explore how that could be used to, to improve mm. human lives and societies. Dr. Tapani Rintakaila, thank you so much for speaking with us on Sunday Extra. Thank you so much, Julianne. It was a pleasure. And Tapani is lecturer in Business Info Systems at the UQ Business School. Getting in touch with ABCRN is easy. Join the conversation live using the ABC Listen app's call and text features.